I didn't have a class on writing a monologue. Mm-hmm. I had a class on directing, which I aced, by the way. <laughs> but am I a director? No. Do I feel like I could direct something? Maybe. <laughs> Hi, hello, and holy shit, is this episode late. I am so sorry for that. Like always, this is your host, Nayelbi Esquivel, and my reasoning for having such a late episode is because I just barely survived my finals, moving back to Chicago, and the, like, 45 minutes straight of trying to unclench every tense muscle in my body from the pure stress of the semester. But I'm here. The episode is here. And to make up for exactly how tardy it is, I have an extraordinarily remarkable guest here with me today. Hello, buenas. My name is Melissa Dupre. I am currently the general manager of Free Street Theater. I'm an ensemble member with Urban Theater Company, an associate artist with Pegasus Theater. I am a comedian, I'm an artist, I'm an activist, I'm a producer, I'm also a playwright and a percussionist. I am also involved in a cultural group called Africaribe where we are interested in the preservation of bomba y plena, which is the folkloric music of Puerto Rico. And my preferred pronouns are she, hers, queen. (laughs) Perfect. Without further ado, because you've waited for this episode long enough, this is Pajaritos, a Chicago Latinx theater podcast. So what was the first theatrical production that you ever worked on? Ooh, my first theatrical production, I remember it. I know it was not a professional production. It was a community production. It was called Jesus Christ Was Born a Homeless Child. And it was through Casa Puerto Riqueña. It was a community-based project that my um, that the, the community commissioned my aunt, Amanda Pelletier, who was um, the the head of a Puerto Rican council for a long time. It was called the, the Puerto Rican Forum. And she was charged with creating this, this play, directing it. So it was like a family-run project. She hired me, my mother, her brothers. Um, because her brothers were also artists. I have an uncle who was in um, Adventures in Babysitting and Bad Boys. So he, he was in films and he was an actor at the time. So she was just like, you're great. I've got to put this play on. I have a shitty script, but I need to put it on in in the community, uh, Casa Puerto Riqueña. Um, so I I did not know at the time that plays weren't like a family function. So I felt very comfortable being on stage. I really kind of took to that stage as a natural. But also I was like surrounded by my family. My mother played Mary, my uncle played Joseph, my aunt Maritza, who's in Juilliard, was singing the entire score to the whole thing. Um, So it was was a really beautiful introduction into what it's like to be on stage. And was that when you decided you were going to stick with theater or was it somewhere down the line? theater, Theater was always something that I knew I could do acting is something I knew that I was like it's fun 
it's a thing, um, it's something, it's a hobby, but it wasn't until I was in college and I, I, had, I had started college um, as pre-med. I was going into nuclear science, I was going into nuclear medicine and studying all of that. I was a straight-A student, but, the, but what happened was that I was a straight-A student, I had a 4.0 GPA, but I was so involved in my extracurriculars, I was had the, the salsa team, I created a salsa team, I was president of the Thespian Society, I was even like president of the chess club, I had all these extracurriculars and no one told me that I needed to like also prep scholarships. So while I had a 4.0 hella curriculars, uh, I had no money. So I was accepted into all these Ivy Leagues for pre-med, but no money. So I ended up going to community college out of high school and um, trying to, you know, get my my cores out of the way. And it, it was just such a sterile environment, math and sciences. And I knew, <laughs> I knew that I was meant for more. And I was already just having having visions of being on stage and being involved in theater that I just ended up switching my major in community college and then I ended up getting a degree for theater performance out of the University of Houston, which is brilliant because I got my course out of the way to community college, went into the University of Houston um, already like two years ahead of everyone and um, all of the professors there were from Chicago or for the Midwest, so I got a really beautiful education from Chicago professors for a fraction of the price, which was awesome. At that time, Jim Parsons from the Big Bang Theory had graduated from the University of Houston. I had, a, I had the same acting professor, and he was funneling money into a particular theater that was doing the kind of theater that we would see here in Chicago, like cutting edge, pushing boundaries. Like That was a, one of the only theaters in Houston that was doing that kind of work. And I was also working at uh, the Black Ensemble Theater there, doing kind of collaborative devised theater piece called Coochie Conversations with Dwayne DeHart. Wayne DeHart, that's the director. He, <laughs> he was wheelchair-bound, but he was like this really like kinky black guy who was like, I want to do a show about pussy. But like specifically how black women talk about pussy. And <laughs> like, I want to talk about that on stage. So he got a whole bunch of women together and we like met a couple times and we wrote a script. And I had a whole monologue of like ode to vibrators and it was also a queer woman. It was the first time that I had even like grappled with queer identity in Houston um, or having that present on stage. So there was just a few opportunities that I thought would work, but honestly I thought Chicago was going to be the place where I'm going to be able to get some work and be taken seriously as a dramatic actress. Comedy had, I was not thinking about comedy at all in Houston, out of college, no way. When did you find comedy? So um, as soon as I packed my bags and graduated from college, I moved back to Chicago because I knew I was going to get work. And the first place I went to was Teatro Luna. People had been telling me, I was like, oh, you're, you're Latina, you're an actress, go, go to Teatro Luna. And they have like a, a large representation of the diaspora. But their whole mission at the time was 
um, autobiographic and ethnographic work. So they would they would incubate in certain areas or communities based off of the issue that they were um, checking out at the time. So thematically, they were looking at immigration. There would be going to the border, they would be going to Mexican-American communities or Mexican communities in Chicago. They would be talking, you know, getting those real stories from there. So that that kind of work intrigued me. So I, I had been with Teatro Luna for maybe about a year doing tours. I did, Cross was my first show with them, talking about my um, migration issues and uh, immigration issues. We had revived a couple of shows like SEXO, which is like really pushing around hypersexuality and feminine rebellion, which again, I was like, this is awesome. I love it all. <laughs> um, but in between, in between the shows that we were writing, we had programming. We had like one night stands where we would have an open mic and we would go take over a bar and we would just have showcases where we would find other talent, other women around or femme identified around the city and give them a platform to do their poetry, do their comedy, do their monologues, anything. But there was one night in December, we had an open mic night and no talent, no one booked. And we were freaking out. And so the artistic director was like, mostly you should do something like, this is gonna be an open mic where we just tap into our own core of artists. And I'm like, I don't know how to do anything. And she was like, yeah, you just, you know, do a piece. Don't you do poetry? I'm like, no. I tell dick jokes and I read scripts. <laughs> and she was like, great. Do 15 minutes of dick jokes. Dick jokes it was. I was like, oh, my God. I got to write dick jokes. Oh, man. So, like, it ended up being, like, a 15-minute set of masturbation. And, like, it wasn't about dick at all. It was just, like, I'm going to write about how much I love to masturbate. And so I did that. And it was a packed, packed bar. Like, people showed up in a snowstorm. And it was the first time I had done anything that I've written. Not even just, like, jokes or comedy. Anything that I've written. And the house fell down. The house fell down. It was stupid. I was just so, like, I was scared. I did not know what my voice was outside of what I can read, rehearse, memorize, and perform. And people were like, you're it. You you could do comedy. And I'm like, I can't. Stop. <laughs> but there were two other nights where I had to do it again. So I ended up having altogether 45 minutes of material. And so, of course, my artistic director was like, that should be a play. You should do a solo play. And I'm just coming to Chicago where solo plays are a thing. Like, I, again, I've never, I've only read about it in my theater history where Anna DeVernay Smith is, like, doing solo work. John Leguizamo is my hero, my icon. I'm thinking John Leguizamo is more like my way. Okay, I'm going to take it, but I'm going to take a stand-up class. I'm going to take a comedy class. And then I started actually writing jokes. And mm -hmm. then I started actually doing comedy. And then, like wow, maybe I can expand this joke into... So now I'm working two different art forms completely at the same time. That's great. Do you still feel like you're behind the ball, like you're behind your peers? You know, sometimes I feel... And this is, oh my gosh, it's such an insecurity of mine, where I feel that I am living, living in the code like I'm living and walking the thing that people preach about equity the you know like people preach about 
or pontificate really about um, breaking down institutional barriers. And I'm like, just make the thing, make the thing that you want to see or like work with organizations, support organizations that are actually doing what you wish you could do. It's kind of like the same transference of conversations in policy. Do you want to force yourself to be included at a table that wasn't built for you? Or do you go build your own table? You know, same thing with Hollywood and the diversity question. I'm like, we're trying so hard to break down institutions and change institutions. But really and honestly, do you just go build the thing? I believe that my representation is going to be very important in theater and in TV and film. So I did Brown Girls web series. It got picked up by HBO. It's Emmy nominated. I am still going to push for my representation in TV and film. Am I going to base my whole entire career on the validation of that institution? No, but I'm going to push for it to live there so that way I can, you know, get that money and do the work in the world <laughs> that I want to see. Absolutely. And the representation is is crucial to be a prolific actress mm-hmm. in these big, you know, institutionalized opportunities for art as somebody who goes against the norm, as somebody mm-hmm. who contradicts these institutions themselves. Like, Brown Girls, I, I, I watched Brown Girls, obviously. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I loved it. I got so hyped because, like, somebody explained it to me. Like, it's like, it's a, it's Broad City, but with, like, people of color. And I watched it, and that's, like, that's not true at all. Right. It's the fact that there are, like, two girls who are best friends. That's Broad City. Um, I think that when people say that, they're not comparing Brown Girls and Broad, Broad City and what I think Broad City does is that they put two women in the the spotlight that you are you have a a firsthand view of their conversations and the way they think, and they are not conventional girls, and so that is pushing that boundary. And so what I think people when people say that I think it's the excitement of brown girls is kind of like the excitement when broad city happened right it was like this they're comparing it to the feeling of having something new and fresh and from um a different perspective than the status quo so when they say it's like it's like that i'm like it's not like the content what you're saying is it's the feeling that you get when you see something like broad city where it's new and exciting and it's different and it something else is there out there it's a different option and it's not girls you know like broad city was the antithesis to girls and then brown girls was like push back a little further and let's go further into the conversations that we should be having and who should be at the forefront of those conversations What was your training like? How did your training help you pursue your career, help you pursue your craft? Well, we, yeah, we talked a little bit about this where, you know, nothing, nothing in my training really prepared me for the road that I was about to take where I had to just kind of like wing it and deconstruct what I've learned and also fill the gaps in my education organically with mentors and with conversations where my theater degree is a BFA that gives you basic knowledge of how to be on stage and not look like a dumbass, right? <laughs> it's like, know your stage right, stage left, and what are basic stage craft 101? Like, it is the basics. It's a tool. So, you know, honestly, I think my training um, 
just geared me with some basic tools of how to be a good, honest actor. Like anything, somebody can give you the tools, but you need to learn how to build your house. That's really interesting because, like, I'm going through my college career right now. Mm-hmm. I, I've never felt more underprepared to move to Chicago mm-hmm. than I have, like, my last semester at college. What have these interviews taught you right now when you get to these questions about, like, what did you wish you knew? Yeah, I mean, like, more often than not, it's like, calm down, you're going to be okay. Your education is not the thing that will define your career. It is your work ethic, the people you know. I want to say how hard you work, but, like, not even that, like, how you work. Mm-hmm. How you work with people. So, like... Efficacy. Effic- exactly. being, being efficient with your time. Saying no to projects and what to say yes to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your metaphor for, like, the house is mm-hmm. perfect. I feel like my college career is the foundation, mm-hmm. and now it's my responsibility to build everything else. Yeah. There is a question of accessibility. There are amazing actors out there who have not ever gone into a class for acting. So, like, not everyone has all of the tools, but they have a particular sense of work ethic. They have a particular sense of, like, I will do what I need to do to get better. Pride, ego, all of that stuff is, like, minimal with those people because they they know how to just shut up and take a note, work with different directors, as many different directors as they possibly can. Not everybody has the same level playing field, you know? Some people have amazing tools and they just don't know how to hit it home, you know? Um, so I can't even say, like, those tools are going to make or break you. It's, it's about your drive, it's about your ambition, and also about your, just your general attitude. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> But yeah, I just, I, I, I'm moving to Chicago in May and I want to start creating work mm-hmm. and I, I, I feel like I'm being dropped like, like a little like goldfish into the ocean Yeah. and now like I feel like I'm more secure. If I am a goldfish, I'll just find my way. Yeah. My way is going to be different than any other, every other person. Yes. Yeah, it will be. And Chicago is an ever-changing environment, the landscape of the art that's being made and the way that it's being made and the conversations being had right now, it's all changing. It's all changing. If you could give advice to somebody who's graduating and doesn't see themselves represented in art, what advice could you give them in order to carve out their own space? First, do some research. Do some, do some research that goes beyond the internet. Chances are there has been someone or some organization, theater company, that might be, that might be doing the work that's combating the thing that you're seeking um, that might have the same kind of representation. Go to town halls, get into the theater community, start nestling in and speaking to people. Like the research that goes beyond interviewing and, and, and internet likely that there there is somebody doing that work and um, I'm just gonna like repeat what other people have said because I believe it is that I don't believe that Chicago needs to be a place where there's a storefront on every corner because what it does is it, it broadens the amount of people that are that are trying to pull from the same pool of funds and money and actors and things like that I would say make the organizations that exist stronger, the ones that you believe are doing the work, 
but the ones that also could use you. Like, you can make a good argument. Like, you don't have me, and you need me. So try there first. And if you don't see it existing in the world, then start creating that work that you want to see. Get with some friends, produce, make the work. I think that also what's really valuable, and I don't know if anybody said this before, was the community. I think a community of artists that are like you or have similar missions in mind, get together, form a community, you know, maybe check in once a month and get into a room with each other. Have an accountability circle. What are you doing that I can help you with? Like maybe one person in the group is a photographer and could do headshots and then you can also like, you know, put that person on film for them, be a, be a reader for their auditions. I think an accountability circle of like artists is so strong and you will need that at some point. You, you might need a sounding board. You might have to I strongly suggest everybody write and create their own content. You might want to like be in a room of artists that, that will read your work and that will give you honest feedback. It's, it's incredible how much I have grown individually because of the community that I've been in. Because there was somebody that, that went to me and said, you're an amazing writer. You should keep doing it. Sorry, I'm getting emotional right now because I'm just like, there have been so many times where I myself didn't believe that I was talented enough or even like I knew what I was doing, but then there were other people who would be like, girl, I don't know what I'm doing either, but let's help each other, you know? Um, also, you, you will never see yourself through other people's eyes, you know? I think community is very important. And find them, create it, create it. So I only have like one more question mm -hmm. before we move into uh, your art. You are a champion of sex positivity, especially for femme-identified people, with your work with the Fly Honey Show and, and sexuality. Why do you feel yourself called to this cause, and how can you encourage people to overcome their own prejudices or biases against mm -hmm. sex positivity for all genders? I am called to advocate for body positivity and sex positivity because of my own upbringing and because of the body that I am that I embody I'm called to do it because it, I feel like liberation in all forms is what we seek I have for a very long time because of my own my own history and trauma have had a hard time feeling liberated in my own body during sex or like the way that other people I engage with other people, their sexual partners. There's, I had fought for a while around shame and hiding myself, but like the minute, the minute that you know, I faced death. <laughs> I faced death. I had a horrible home invasion happen to my mother and I in Houston, where we were both like tied up and beaten, and we were robbed, and we we did not know if we were going to live out of that situation. And I think it was that point where I'm just like, none of it fucking matters. None of like the standards that other people put on me is going to matter. None of the I can't or I don't think so or I, I fear that. None of it matters. So I think it was like 20, it happened in 2010. 2011 was when I just became the biggest hot ass there ever was. I had never, ever in my life had been so not afraid of things because I was like, I face death. There is nothing that makes me feel 
less trivial than than having to worry about what other people think about me. I could give zero fucks because life is short. And if somebody wanted to kill me tomorrow, will I feel fulfilled and loved? And I can't, I, there's certain things that I just can't control. I could not control if somebody wanted to invade my personal private space. Cool. None of it matters. Live for today. Live for the fullest sense of self. And then to go beyond that a little bit, now that I like, I, okay, I was a hot ass. I love my body. I talk about hairy nipples and stretch marks. Great. I'm past that. Now I'm talking about deeper self-love. And the second part of your question about, like, you know, how do I continue to do that and why is it important even and, and how can we help each other continue to do that is because I strongly believe that in this fight that we have right now for existence, love of self is the only way that you are going to be a strong enough advocate for for anything. If this body that doesn't have representation is continuously getting negative feedback from the world, how do you fight through it? It's love of self, self self-love. Knowing that you are perfect as you are, that you are light, that you are loved because you love yourself and if you have one other person that loves you, that's beautiful. We are only here for a certain amount of time. And if you don't love yourself, your light can't shine through and make a mark and leave a legacy. And you have to love yourself ridiculously and love yourself through all of it. And unfortunately, sometimes the world doesn't let us do that as much, but you have to fight back against that. That's really poetic. That's really beautiful. Mm. Are you a writer? (laughs) <laughs> I used to be. <laughs> yes, it is that time of the episode where I jump in for some pajaritos business. First, we would like to thank Mayamo Sebastian for the use of our theme song, La Fiesta, from the album El Abre. Second, I would like to thank the Alliance for Latinx Theater Artists. They are an organization completely run by volunteers dedicated to the community of Latinx theater artists and developing resources for that community. If you are a Latinx theater artist and not yet a member, come join us. Visit us at altachicago.org, click on membership, and check out all the benefits of becoming a member. And also on that same website, we have opportunities for our monthly newsletter, which keeps you updated on every exciting Chicago Latinx theater opportunity coming up. There's also information on the community, information on Chicago, and information, frankly, that is exciting to know. And finally, like always, I would like to thank you, our audience. Already, I've gotten amazing feedback from people who are excited about this podcast, who are excited about the opportunities that this podcast might present, and I've also gotten feedback from you on how to make this podcast better, how to improve upon my interviewing skills, and how to become a better theater artist myself, as you can tell from the episode. This podcast is a one-person operation. I carry all my equipment out to everybody's locations. I record their interviews, and then I come home and just edit until my eyes bleed. And your support and advice for this podcast is something that I am remarkably grateful for. And I value every single conversation I've had from this opportunity. On a less mushy note... 
At the end of the podcast, we always have a moment for our artists to share some of their art. Melissa has agreed to share with us a monologue from one of her shows. I'll let her introduce her herself. So I'm going to share the final monologue in Sushi Frito, where Abuela is coming up to persuade Melissa, me, about her views of what life should be and where Melissa should be putting her energy and focus based off of her life experiences and the things that she wants Melissa to reflect on and be aware of. Ay, Dios mío, when are you going to have a baby, huh? Judah cannot wait too long or your baby will have the downs. Ojalá que no, ojalá que no. Y eso fueron. Ese juero que tú estás ahora. Él quiere hijos. He wants kids. He's nice. Pero what does he want? Huh? What can he give you? What does he have to offer? Huh? You cannot wait for him to be ready. You tú siempre está en la calle luchando con los prietos, marching hasta la protest. And I tell you, you cannot do that. Huh? Hasta el Oscar López Rivera ese. Y you march? Pero pa' qué? Tú sabes que él fue un criminal. He does not speak for all Puerto Rican people. Hmm? And what about your life, Melissa? Your life. You cannot have it both ways. Estar en la calle luchando and wanting to have a family. Uh-uh. No, 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 señor. No, no. It's hard. The women, we always have to choose. One or the other. Y they complain. Hmm? I had no choice. Huh? 15, 15 years old. I had no choice. And your grandfather, he was a horse. And not in a good way. You know, he took me whenever he wanted. Cuando le dio la gana. If I wanted to or not, he took me. Y ahora que? I'm a mother of 10. I have 34 grandchildren. And my house is empty. I work all my life for my kids. Where are they? They don't come to see me. Ni me llama. Where are they? I work all my life to have kids. Inota. I had to work. Mira, I became a Cook County Sheriff. La primera Puerto Riqueña. 33 years I work para dar a mis hijos. Porque I love them. There was no time for hugs or kisses and nice words, huh? Love comes later. When you have a family, when you have kids, you have to find someone to provide for you, to be a good person. You cannot pay rent with love at first. No, 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 no. Love, love is, love is invisible. Se va. Loyalty. You have to find somebody who is loyal. Eso va. Eso vale. Put yourself first. Trust nobody. My kids, they make mistakes, but I still love them. I cannot control what they do, but I love them. My house is falling apart, but I wait for them. Wait for them to call. Wait for them to come here. Love. Amor. ¿Qué es? Mija. Por favor, no te vayas a buscar el amor. Don't look for love. Love will come later. 
after the work is done. Hay que trabajar primero. You cannot have it all right now, mama. No, no. I gave everything and choose to have a career para dar a mis hijos. And now, when I need them, they are gone. And that is the curse of women. Mira. You cannot have it all. Adentro no está, afuera está, adentro no está, afuera está, adentro. Adentro.